There's this video that they showed us of these prisoners doing, have they used Vipassana in these prisons? And the prisoners were saying at the end of it, like, this is worse than prison. <laughs> <laughs> at least I could talk in prison. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Welcome to Hippie Critical. Manifestation. Raves and transformational festivals. Sound healing. Tantra is about being embodied to go completely barefoot. Someone that tries every single sort of hippie practice. Very subjective experiences. Skepticism is totally healthy. From the counterculture to the common culture. It is a lovely Sunday afternoon and I am here with one of my close friends, Elise Todd. When I was curating my list of quote-unquote hippie topics, I wrote down meditation and it's such a broad category and specifically one of those which I have no experience with but was fascinated by when you first started telling me about it was silent meditation. Can you just define for me like what is silent meditation or what is a silent meditation retreat? So the silent meditation retreat I go to is called Vipassana and Vipassana means seeing reality as as it is. What it is, is you, you go to a location. They have them all over the world. It's donation based. You can give whatever donation you'd like. It's 10 days long. It's 12 hours a day of meditation. There's a break for lunch and there's no dinner, but you can have like, there's an hour break or something like that. And you go to bed at 9 PM, wake up at 4 AM and, and start it all over again. So a lot of meditating. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then, wow. uh, so, and the thing is also, mm -hmm. like I said, it's, it is silent, no reading, no yoga, no music, no writing, just just meditation. Wow. Mm -hmm. I'm surprised no yoga because I associate the two. I thought you guys might have been doing like yoga poses and all that. So no exercise either? So they say you can go on walks and yoga is not, it's not that it doesn't work well with the meditation. It's just that they don't want distractions to other people. So they mm. don't want you like doing yoga poses and it's, you're supposed to pretend that you are alone in this retreat. Mm -hmm. And so you actually avoid eye contact with any, with anybody, unless, you know, you need to talk to the teacher about something, but otherwise you, you really try to pretend like mm. you're the only one there at the retreat. So the design of this whole thing is for a journey into the self, it mm -hmm. seems and to, because there's other people around, to control the environment such that you really have your own personal experience and you're not really affecting that of others? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. So before diving more into, I have so many questions about like the specific format and practices and what came up for you during silent meditation. I wanna ask, how did you even find out about it? How did you get turned on to the idea? And was it someone who convinced you? Yeah, so uh, I think it was, Six years ago, I was going to go on a solo backpacking, my first solo backpacking trip through Southeast Asia. And a friend of mine had told me right before I went that she went to a Vipassana retreat and it was life changing for her. Mm. And she was a good friend of mine. She's someone that tries every single sort of uh, holistic or hip hippie um, practice there is. Sounds like I should talk to her next. <laughs> yeah. And um, so while I was on my six-month backpacking trip, about three or four months in, I had decided that I wanted to do the the retreat. And I looked up some locations that were near me. And, the, and one of the places that it worked well with my schedule was in Burma. And it was a really awesome place to do it in because actually mm. Vipassana, the meditation technique, was lost for thousands of years. And then it was found mm. again in a, a little village in Burma. Goenka is the one that started this Vipassana 
asana meditation center that's now all over the world is is from Burma. So mm-hmm. I didn't know that at the time. I just mm-hmm. it was to me a really good happenstance that nice happenstance that I got to to do it there and we actually saw Goenka's son there as well. So it was really cool to see that. I didn't wow. realize at the time because I was, mm-hmm. you know, so green, but uh, there's a lot of roots uh, there. Wow. So whenever someone goes to a silent meditation retreat, is it most likely first that is vipassana? And if it is, then it traces its origins back to Goenka from this Burmese tradition. Correct. Yes. That's good context to know. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. What was it like when you first stepped foot into this center? As you can imagine, Burma is probably, it's very, because I've been to uh, a center in Burma, I've been to Joshua Tree, and another location, North Fork in California, and they're very, they're quite different. In Burma, there's no air conditioning. It's like wooden. I mean, it's like um, there are cement slats for your bed and you just like roll out a little cot. Mm. And there are hundreds of people. I want to say there was like three or 400 people inside this large meditation room and there's no air conditioning. It was so hot. It was definitely like you are meditating in a uh, third world country, (laughs) (laughs) Mm. in a little prison, if Mm. you will. And um, Meditation camp. A meditation camp. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's actually... Funny, there was this video that they showed us of these prisoners doing how they use Vipassana in these prisons. And the prisoners were saying at the end of it, like, this is worse than prison. (laughs) (laughs) At least I could talk in prison. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So that was interesting. Obviously, the facilities. And but there was probably 80% Burmese people and then 20% tourists or foreigners. The first day you can talk or first couple hours you can talk. So it was really fun. I met this girl, my roommate, this girl, Kim from New York also traveling uh, and doing a little backpacking, a solo trip. And her and I just got along so well. We were like laughing our ass off, had similar humor. Wait, like, wait a minute. During this silent meditation retreat? So right when you get there, you can talk. Like I you see. can talk for beginning. an hour or two. And then right when like 5 p.m. hits, you're not allowed to talk for the rest of the 10 days. Oh, I see. And I so see. her and I were jiving super well, like, ah! Like we had, we were very, very similar. And mm-hmm. it was like, oh my God, how am I going to like not talk to this girl for 10 days? Like I can already tell she's going to be like a good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. But we did it. We didn't talk for, for 10 days. We didn't look at each other. You know, we avoided all sort of contact. And then the 10th day we, when we could finally talk, we're like, oh my God, so much to tell you. <laughs> and we ended up traveling together for, for the next three or four weeks. Wow. And, and we're, we're really great friends to this day. That's amazing. One of the questions that you must get all the time is, how can you stand being silent for an entire 10 days? Don't you go crazy? So yeah, anytime I've told people about this, like, oh my God, how can you be silent? And I'm like, that is one, the easiest part of the 10 days. I'll tell you why in a minute. But number two, it's the best part. And it's the part that now I realize when I told you my self-care is to, to have solo time. It's because it's so nice to have no distractions. You're not allowed to have your phone, obviously. You're not talking to anyone. You're, no one's deciding anything for you. You are completely insular and you're making all the decisions yourself. You know, am I going to go on a walk right now? What am I going to eat? And it feels really good to do that, really uh, therapeutic to do that. And so... As far as uh, why it's the easiest part, I mean, obviously the the hardest part is sitting for 12 hours a day, uh, literally just sitting because Mm. you you don't realize that sitting for even, you know, a few hours is hard on your back and you're supposed to, you're not supposed to move very much. 
so when you're sitting. when you arrive, is the instruction like you have to meditate in this way? You have to do it sitting down. You can't like stand up or. Yeah, there's no standing up. You can sit really? down. You can sit cross-legged. You could sit on a chair if you have back issues. Some people request a chair. You have so, little cushions under your butt. So you're sitting on these cushions. Does it differ from center to center or is it pretty standardized? Because I, I can't help but feel like what I would struggle with is like, oh, this is so rigid. I'm going to be silent already, but I have to like sit and I can't stand and I can't like have a walking or moving meditation. Like what's up with that? Yeah. So at this, there are other Vipassana centers that in Burma where it's mixed sitting and walking meditations. These centers, they only allow you to sit. I will say that the struggle or the pain is actually a really great part of it. When you're meditating, and there's only three hours of the day that they ask you to not move at all, you can, no one's going to like hit you with a stick or anything, <laughs> but like, you know, you're, you're asked to not, to, to not move. And so you'll sit there and you will feel so much ache and pain, uh, you know, in your butt and your side, everywhere in your whole entire body. To me, I've never experienced literal tor torture, but this is the closest I've ever gotten to, hmm. to that where I'm like, in my head, you know, like this is complete, complete torture. Yeah, I feel um, like I would, that would be the part that I would struggle with the most. For sure. But it's actually the part that pushed me that that made, I think, the meditation practice or what I got out of it so much uh, more beneficial for me. Because going into it is, you know, you're, what you're meditating on is your body sensations. And so what the practice that, or what the Goenkis talks about is that you will have reactions, emotional responses to things that either make you crave things, really desire something or have an aversion to it or want to push something away. And it's all because of your body sensations. Like your subconscious mind is, is saying, I do like this or I don't like this. And your body's having an emotional reaction to it. Hmm. And so mm -hmm. what they're trying to teach you is to not have a strong reaction, to be equal-minded to, to these sensations. So what you're meditating on is your body sensations. And some sensations feel really terrible. But you think, okay, equanimous, I'm not going to have any a reaction to this. I'm not going to think that this is a bad sensation. It's not. It's just a sensation. Same thing with a, a great sensation. Oh, that feels really good. It's just a sensation, not greater or worse than any other one. And the other thing you're thinking about is this concept of anicca, the rising and passing of every sensation. So yes, this is a this feeling of tingle in my in my arm. I feel that, but I also know that it's going to rise and pass just like any other sensation. And so when you start to be more objective about your sensations, you can start to realize how that can affect you in your day to day where I don't have to, if someone cuts me off on the side of the road, I don't have to be like, you asshole and want to <laughs> flip them off. I can realize, oh, wow, I'm starting to feel heat in my chest and starting to feel tightness in my jaw. And I'm starting, you can really feel that you're feeling angry, but then you can make a choice, an easier choice to say, okay, Anicca. Uh, this is going to rise and pass. I don't have to feel attached to this sensation. I don't have to continue on with this reaction of, of anger. Mm. So it gives you a better idea of how to control your emotions and become the master of your own mind and the master of your own body. And so when you think about the the horrible sensations, sometimes the torture, torturous coming back to sitting there, you know, after a couple of hours, and then you're sitting for your one hour of not moving and you're in, in complete pain and you, you start to really actually, instead of 
trying to have an aversion of trying to go away from some of the pains in your body, like the pain in my back, you actually start diving into it even deeper. Like, what is that feeling? Where is it stemming from? Where is it moving to? Is it going from my side to my hip? And you actually pull deeper and deeper into it. And when you start to to hmm. do that, the le- it doesn't feel like pain anymore. You can start feeling sensations and you kind of become more scientific in your own body of what's going on and you become more objective. And then when you come back, because you're meditating from top, you know, from your head to your feet, feet to your head, when you come back to that area, you're like, oh, it moved. It did rise and pass. It, it, it went to another place in my body. Or now I don't have a pain there, but I have a, I have a pain on my leg now or, or what have you. And the more I, I was able to do that, and, and when the meditation was over and I was able to move around and all the pain had, had gone away, it really made me realize that pain will come and go. It, on a deeper mm. level and an experiential level that I had never experienced before. That I was very aware that there was pain, that there was, you know, these different sensations and that I didn't have, and I could really understand the, the, the experience that I didn't have to be attached to that emotion, to that sensation. So would it be like before this experience, your relationship to pain was, oh, this thing sucks. I want to get away from it as fast as possible. I'm hurting right now. So th- let me get out of it as soon as possible. And after practice with silent meditation and sitting with a feeling and Nietzsche, it's more like I'm recognizing this. I'm recognizing this pain. I know it comes and goes. It can move. And instead of immediately reacting to it and avoiding it, you have this curiosity about it, which is like, where is it coming from? Like, can I actually dig deeper into the source of it, how it's moving around? And that's just at the at the physical body level mm-hmm. for you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, kind of going to your question of why earlier, why did you get into it? And yes, it, my friend had told me about Vipassana, but I was really searching for something to help me with my pain, not physical, emotional pain. You know, I was dealing with a lot of family trauma, dealing with holding my family together when both of my parents had heavy illness, mental illnesses. And I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know how to, to deal with, with my suffering. I definitely was super open at that time. You know, I was 24 years old. What can I do? You know, therapy, of course, I had done some of that, but it wasn't enough for me to understand how to handle, to handle my life's circumstances. After, so there was such a difference between before I went to Vipassana or my trip and then afterwards. So before when I would have to deal with my mom calling me about something or the police calling me about something, I would have such a strong emotional reaction and I would feel angry and depressed and I didn't know how to shake it. And I would always feel anger towards my my parents, mm-hmm. a lot of anger. Even, but then at the same in the same vein, I would still I would still feel really sad for them and feel like I had to do something for them. So there was this weird juxtaposition of the things that I was feeling at the same time for them. But it was just feeling so many things, mm-hmm. a and great then amount also, of like emotional charge. Exactly, and then also like what were ways that I was dealing with it? You know, one was drinking and partying and and trying to find ways to distract myself from those emotional pains. So afterwards, you know when I came back, when I would have to deal with 
certain issues and dramas, I realized, oh, I'm feeling really angry or I'm feeling really upset. And I real and afterwards I was like, oh, I can just I can just think of this as a sensation that's going to come and go. And then one of the great things about coming out of that of uh, the the retreat is that 10 days and that much saturated t- uh, that much meditation like in this saturated little time frame helped me with every time I had a pain, it would be automatic. Like my subconscious would automatically say, Anicca, be equanimous, Anicca, be equanimous. It stuck with me every single time. So then it was much easier for me to feel that, to feel, yes, it will come and go. Yes. I mean, obviously I'm going to still feel those emotions and I would still maybe feel them for, for, for a period of time, but it was much quicker for me to bounce back. Actually, when I think about tools and when I think about therapy, what didn't help me about therapy was that they'll say, oh, when you're having this trauma, try to step back, try to journal, try to pose this question in your head. Mm-hmm. And it's really nice to think about those things, but that's not my first reaction when I'm feeling emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm feeling angry and upset, I'm not like, let me go journal this out. You know, mm-hmm. let me let me go outside and take my 10 deep breaths. I don't want to do that. It's the opposite of what I want to do. Mm-hmm. So with the Vipassana, it just rewired my brain to, I'm feeling an emotional response. I'm feeling a heaviness in my chest. And I go, oh, I, you can feel your body sensations much more than, than I ever had been able to before as mm. well. I was much more in tune with my body. I could like, oh, I feel this, this heaviness in my chest. And this like first thought is Anicca, this will come and go, this will come and go. And it was that it just, it, you know, changed my mindset much more quickly than anything else I had done. Mm-hmm. And let me just regurgitate that because how I understood what you said was with some of the forms of therapy you tried, the method was more so, oh, you experience this and then kind of go and process it in this different way through these methods, which may or may not have their benefits. But through going through an intense 10-day meditation, what you got out of it was, no, I'm not going to just like put these emotions on pause and go analyze and examine them. I'm now able to recognize them as they're happening. Mm-hmm. And I'm just more aligned and in tune with my emotions so that as they already start happening and occurring in my body, in my mind, I'm already being able to dance with it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's more in real time than mm. than anything else. I mean, I, I love therapy and I think there's so many benefits to it. But to me, maybe I haven't done enough of it. I don't know. But it, it didn't affect me as much in real time. It didn't make me feel... My goal at this juncture was I need to be the master of my mind. And I didn't think mm. therapy was was able to get me there. So why 10 days? It sounds kind of arbitrary. Why a 10-day silent retreat? Because you did two now, right? Two separate 10-day retreats? Yeah. Why do they want you to do it in 10 days? Mm-hmm. Or are there options? Or do they offer 10-day, 7-day, 3-day? So I don't know why they choose 10 days. I will say from my own experience, they they only do offer for 10 days for your first time. If you've already completed a course, you can do a three-day, which I've done. And if you've done, I think, five 10-day courses, you can do a 30-day course, something like that. So 10 days is sort of the minimum for entry level. But I found that you need 10 days because... The first three days, you're just kind of getting used to, you know, the environment, what you're supposed to do, the schedule, waking up at 4 a.m., all the things. Your body's just acclimating within that those first three or four days. And then after that, you're starting to get used to the practice a little bit more, day four to seven, and you're just starting to get a little bit comfortable with it. But around day seven or day eight, I think you want to get the fuck out of it. Like you, you're like, mm. I can't stand this anymore. Mm. I need to go home. 
And, and you said that's day seven or eight? Day seven or eight. Yeah. Wow, that's actually pretty impressive that you don't get to that point earlier. <laughs> yeah, I think that at least for me and some of the people that I have spoken to, it's near the, the end period, the 70, 80% period that mm. where you're like, this is so outside of my comfort zone for so many days. I don't know. I don't know what, what it is about, about that. Maybe you're almost feeling like you're almost out of there too. And you're like, ah, oh, like just a couple more days. Can I make it? But it's, it, there's a hump for me. There's that hump of like, you're kind of uncomfortable. You're, you're doing it though. You're, you're sure, you're not sure of the benefits. And then day seven or day eight, you're like, this is really tough. I, I want to get out of here. And then at the end of it, you really start to relax. And for me is when I was starting to get the benefits around day, day eight or day nine. And then mm. at, around that time, I didn't even want to go home. I was like, Oh no, I'm just starting to settle into this. I'm just starting to unpack some, some things. So yeah. actually, after my first 10 days, I was like, I want to do 30 days. Um, <laughs> but obviously, I couldn't. And what were the benefits that you started experiencing at the end versus maybe in the middle? Well, like I said, they it's a little bit different for one day one to day three. There's a technique where you're just meditating on the sensations on your upper lip. That's it. Wow. Three days. They're trying just to get you to understand what subtle sensations feel like. Then after that day four and on, you're meditating on your full body sensations, head to your toe, toe to your head. Around day seven or something like that is when you, if you can do that really easily, you start to go inside the body. You pierce through from like your chest to your back. And so your front of your head to the back of your head. At that time, I was like day eight, I was able to feel the sensations all the way from my whole head. I could feel the sensations in my brain to the back. Of my, it was pre like, at one point it was like a psychedelic experience where I was like, wow, oh my God. Like <laughs> I, I felt like I was traveling through my own head. It was really wild. And then around that period as well as when they ask for you to do the three sittings a day, just one hour not moving. You can't ask that of someone within the first three to four days because you're fidgety as hell. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, my yeah, back. You yeah. know, I got to stretch a little bit. <laughs> like you see mm -hmm. all the new students who are in the back of the, the room are all like fidgety as hell. Yeah, that would be me. <laughs> yeah. And so you... Like I said, you get acclimated to the environment. You you stop moving as much. You relax a little bit more into it. And then with those one-hour sittings is when I I thought I saw the most benefit. Like I told you of feeling like I can overcome in my head one of the most extreme physical experiences that I've ever had, had to deal with. Like extremely painful uh, physical experience I've ever had to deal with. And how can I overcome that time and time again? So um, I forgot what your question was. You answered it. Oh. <laughs> was it the 10-day thing? Yeah, I started off with why 10 days, and then you broke down each day that there was a format. But I'm curious, yeah. so it's silent, but there's instruction? Like, do they give you a booklet and you're just reading that, like, oh, okay, today I'm going to do the head-to-body thing and not just my upper lip now? Or is there, like, a teacher saying this to you? So Goenka, the, he's actually uh, deceased now, but... It's all recordings of his voice running through the practice or the technique. So you do listen to mm -hmm. him. And if and you it's have, obviously translated, right? Because is it he he speaks Bur English. Burmese? He's oh. Burmese, but he's... Okay. Yeah. So his story is really interesting because he was actually a very successful businessman who had extreme headaches and he would travel all, the, all over the world for business and he had these extreme headaches and he would go all over the world trying to find a doctor to help him cure him. And he couldn't find a cure. 
So then he started to go and learn this Vipassana meditation practice and found that it completely changed his life. It changed him. It's obviously like it cured him of his headaches, headaches. and so forth. And that's when he would decided that he was going to create the center and quit his business and then get these centers all over the world to help other people. Mm. And so every mm. night, actually, you watch a video of him. He'll do a talk for, I think, you know, an hour or something like that. And he's so engaging, so charming, breaks things down in a way that's easy for everyone to understand. At least that's sort of like your your entertainment outlet is through him. Mm. I have a bit of a counterintuitive question to ask, which is, is there anyone that a 10-day silent retreat is not for that you would think like, oh, you definitely don't do that or maybe hold off on it for now? Could there be anyone who would fall into that camp? Yeah. Um, you. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Okay. Okay. Because no, no. I'm hypocritical. <laughs> I suggest it to so many people. It's, uh, it's okay. Let me think oh, about well, this. Well, uh, kind of a related question. Maybe this answers oh. it <laughs> is I imagine that if you have had some experience meditating, even if it was like 10 minutes a day doing headspace, at least that's better than going in cold. Like, would you, can people just go in cold? Would that be not recommended or does it, does it really not matter? Um, I had done meditations, like 10 minute meditations had started to practice. I mean, I had never done an hour a day even when I went in. So for me, it felt a little bit like I was going in cold. I just, my sister just went and she had done meditation practice here and there. She's definitely not mm. part of her daily practice. Mm -hmm. And so for her, I, I would say that's going in cold. If someone has never meditated even for one minute of their life, I guess that could be fairly difficult. Something else that I think, type of person that I also think may need to, actually, I don't know if I Would should say maybe this. Maybe struggle with it more? I can't, so yeah, so who, I think that the person that would struggle with this is someone who's on medication for some for whatever, some sort of mental illness mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's really mm -hmm. hard for me to imagine someone being able to sit for 12 hours on their mind and their sensations if they are medicated. Um, but that, I'm not sure how that works. I that think makes sense. even I think they ask you as well if you are on medication. They want to make sure that you're on a medication that works for mm -hmm. the practice. I also will say it's almost like when someone does acid or psychedelics for the first time. You know when you tell people like, uh, you probably shouldn't go if you're like in a really dark place in your life mm -hmm. because it can release some demons that your body isn't ready for, that your mind isn't ready for. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like that, I think. On our day seven or eight of this retreat I went to previously, a guy had a panic attack in the middle of one of the meditation periods, and it was scary for everyone to to, to what, watch. What was that like? Was he like screaming? Yeah. So I think, well, first it was kind of funny because it, he just started snoring very, very loudly. It's a big, big like sitting area, and he's snoring so loud that everyone's like, looking at him and kind of giggling, you know, he's like, yeah. oh. <laughs> and we're like it was crazy. And we're like, hee, hee, hee. and so <laughs> someone tries to wake him up and the guy is like, wake up, wake up, like screaming at him. The guy's not waking up. And finally, cause you're not allowed to touch each other either. So they yeah. finally like woke him up and he just started screaming like, ah, like, <laughs> uh, you know, like and everyone's like freaked out and he was just screaming. And, and this is how many days in six or seven. Yeah. So it's been, Real quiet for a while. Yeah. All of a sudden, this... This guy screamed. <laughs> yeah. And could just hear that he 
it was really sad. You could just hear he was not doing well. The way he was screaming and talking afterwards. Mm. Like, he was going through something. Mm -hmm. Um, So, sometimes it worries me what your mental space is going into it. Mm -hmm. I I guess maybe my way to generalize it is before going into any intense experience, if you're going to be committing to like 10 days or even if it's 10 hours of an acid trip, that (laughs) your quality of mind going into it does matter. Like if you're medicated or if you are in a very dark place, maybe that is something to reconsider, maybe like hold off on for a little bit. But maybe to be fair, that is what some people need. Exactly. It's weird. It's a, it's like a fine line between that, you know, mm. like I went because I really needed help. I don't think that he should not have gone. I just think you may need to prepare for, for what could mm. happen. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. It's a, it's hard for me mm. to answer that for, for other people. Have you met anyone who, after hearing about your meditation journey and silent meditation, they're like scoffing like, oh, okay, that's, that's BS. That's bullshit. Or like, that's not scientifically backed. I'm curious, like, what you would say to people with that opinion. I haven't really experienced anyone talk to me about it not being scientifically backed because I think so many more people are open to the idea of meditation and and the benefits of it, of just, you know, breathing and taking a break from the distractions in your life that most people could see that there is benefit to that. Um, Something that Goenka also talks about is that your mind affects matter. So the mind affects your body, which is the matter. And so, I mean, obviously it's proven that there's that placebo effect, right? Like Mm -hmm. your mind is really capable of changing and affecting your body. And some people say even your surroundings or has has a charge on other things that are in your life. Even that thing, the the secret, you know, where everyone's like your intention, the law of attraction, right? I don't know all the science behind it, but I think that there's more and more people that have a that believe that that your mind is really powerful. And so when you think that, what is then the most important aspect of your human anatomy? Your mind. And what do we do on a day-to-day basis as human beings to protect it and to to improve upon that? And there's actually not a whole whole lot besides, you know, educating yourself and intellectually stimulating yourself. How do you have control over your mind? And you'll know that you don't have control over it when you start meditating because you're mm. meditating and within two mm. minutes you're thinking, well, what did I have did I have for lunch yesterday? Or oh, thinking about a, um, this bat weird interaction you had with a friend earlier that morning or what you have to what's on your to-do list for tomorrow. You have that monkey, the monkey brain starts going and spouting off all these different things and you realize within one minute I don't have any control over this. What's really funny is people will always mm-hmm. tell me, like, I'm bad at meditation. Oh, I don't do it because I'm bad at it. I'm like, nobody is good at it. It's it's not like, it's just like anything you have to practice, you know, at. Mm. And, right. and it's not a competition. No, I was like, just try five minutes. You know, that's all you need to start with. Five minutes a day. That That's already going to be beneficial. And, you, you know, you work your way up. But it's funny to me. I get that very often. That's one of the first things that, that people say. I'm like, how can you do 10 days? I can't even do five minutes. Mm. Like, well, you know, everybody, the body and the mind and everything is much more capable than you think it is. And that's another cool thing about it is you think, oh, I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could do 10 days. And you get done with it and you're like, oh, I could, I could do it. Mm. And then you think anybody can do it if I can do it. And everybody is capable of it or most people are capable of it. All right. So you did touch on this before, but... 
what are some things that from this 10 day silent retreat that you're able to bring back and experience in everyday life? And I ask that because I often experience what I call the festival effect, where I go to a festival like lightning in a bottle and I go to some workshop and I'm like, this is great. I'm going to totally work this into my everyday life and I just forget about it. And for you, this has been like a very core and peak experience for you. How have you been able to translate that into your daily life? I think that it's infused itself in almost every part of my life, in my relationship with my fiance and I, when we have discussions, even just the other day, we had a big argument and I could feel in my body all the things I was feeling sadness and anger and feeling at the same time, I I had also this feeling of I can control this. I don't have to react to this. And it was almost like two, two people in my head. It was almost like, you know, the devil and the angel on your shoulder was kind of like that, but it was like my mind and ego versus my like truer self, higher self that it knows that what should I do in this situation? And I I got to choose which, which one, which path I wanted to take. Unfortunately, I took the, the, the devil on my shoulder (laughs) path, but afterwards I was able to tell him that and I was able to talk through it with him and I was able to say, Hey, if I'm at this juncture again or if I'm at this crossroads again, I think I, it'll be easier for me to choose the path of Mm. what's best for our relationship. So definitely it's improved my relationships. I use it with my family, obviously, dealing Mm. with some of the, the traumas and the dramas with them. I've been able to meditate afterwards to feel all the sensations in my body and be able to realize that this will come and go. The idea of a Nietzsche, the idea of this will pass, it's something that I've already, I've understood that concept previously. But when I got to experience it from a this physical sensation mm. aspect to mm-hmm. really experience the coming and going of things on this deep level, I was able to apply it more in my daily life naturally through my subconscious to say, okay, this will come and go, this will come and go. And also even in my work and design, to have intentions in my design, to be intentional, to be less reactive to clients, to be less reactive to feedback, to make me a more objective designer as well. So I feel like it's really infused everything and it's improved my life greatly. Yeah. Sounds like there's so many aspects that it has an impact on from like actual business and working relationships to personal relationships. Yeah, you know what's also funny? My sister, who just finished her first 10 day, we just had lunch two days ago and we're mm-hmm. eating Indian food. And she tells me, you know, I could never have Indian food before Vipassana. <laughs> I was like, oh, why? She's like, well, it's too spicy. I hated like the sensation of, of spice. It was like something that was really spicy. And she's like, now when I eat it, I just focus on the sensation and I don't think of it as a negative thing. I don't, or a positive thing. I just, feel the sensations. And then because of it, I'm able to enjoy the food and the other flavors more. And I don't, wow. I don't have this aversion to it. And I thought, I thought, wow, that's a really great little story as to how Vipassana could yeah. affect you. You <laughs> know, Vipassana, I couldn't eat Indian food. Afterwards, I could eat lots of it. <laughs> <laughs> but my butt don't like those sensations. <laughs> wow. We forgot to touch on taking solo travel and solo trips because I think it's a perfect extension of the conversation of taking a 10-day silent retreat, which Mm -hmm. is a journey into the self. You mentioned that every once in a while you like to go on solo trips. So is it kind of the same thing? Yeah, Yeah, actually one of the best things about 
the silent meditation retreat is the silence is because it's really nice to for me now to go on solo trips so I you know went to Kyrgyzstan for a month coming up I have three days camping by myself and it's really nice to and I'm sure that this is why people like to go camping and so forth to connect with nature to connect with themselves but there's even a deeper connection with yourself when you're by yourself you can journal and you can sort of unpack things that have been sitting in the back of your head that you let other distractions continue to store further and further in the back of your head so it's letting all of that to the surface and allowing yourself space and time to let that unfold and to dive into how you're actually feeling. And then for me to meditate on those sensations and those feelings and to sort of let them go. I guess it's sort of a a ritualistic thing where I have these periods where I'm by myself, I unpack things that I've haven't allowed myself or distracted myself from. And then I think of, I I let those go. And then I think of what are the new possibilities? What are my new goals? What are new things that I want to do in my life? And have that sort of cycle or or ritual. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for sharing all of that. Are there any last takeaways for the listener about meditation in general? And then, you know, about yourself, where can people find your work? Um, I think that every person is capable of meditation. And I think that, you know, for me, when I first started, I just went on YouTube and watched free 10 minute videos of of meditation, ones that actually were really easy, where people who would walk you through a scenario in your head. And those are some of the easiest ones to start with, not just to go straight to like body sensations to kind of allow yourself to to kind of go into this mindset of, you know, think of the stars and how you're connected to it and all this kind of aspirational stuff that that I thought was really helpful for me when I first started meditating. And it was only 10 minutes and it made me feel really positive and it's free. And by the way, what would you encourage people to Google search for if it's a meditation on YouTube? Like what are the key terms? And when they're searching for silent retreat, what should the search terms be? For YouTube, I just search 10-minute meditations and and see what comes up. It also depends like on the person. You, you'll listen to a couple videos and what you'll have to, you know, you, you'll find is that you need to jive with that person's voice mm. who's, who's doing it. Because if you're like, mm-hmm. I cannot stand this mofo, don't watch those videos. You know, a lot of people think, oh, spiritual people have to like talk like this and mm-hmm. be like, have this like airy yeah, sound. Yeah, yeah. And, and talk about nonsensical things. And it doesn't have to be that way. You can find people that really that con- you connect with. And that's the thing. You just, just like anything in, in life, you have to find the, the people or the teachers or the mentors that you connect with. And so that's what I would suggest for that. And then for Vipassana, you could just search, I think, Vipassana meditation retreats and it should come up. It's the one run by Goenka is the one that's worldwide. And that is probably going to be the number one through three on your you know, search results page mm. for that. So I, I think, think I'm a good SEO person. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I just think there's just no other competition for that. Mm. So if you do search Vipassana meditation retreat. I see. And one thing that really surprised me when you first told me about it is that it seems like they're doing a lot of goodwill because it's by donation only. And they encourage people to come back and volunteer their time to like help clean up, which you've done before. I just love the idea of it because I expected that this would cost thousands of dollars. I know. Because a lot of meditation and yoga retreats do cost a lot of money. And this is the only one that 
is technically free, but or like purely donation based. The beautiful thing about it is if you don't have any money, you can offer your services. So my sister offered to help with their website, or I was only able to pay a small amount of money the first time I went. And then I donated my time, you know, cleaning the facilities as well. They suggest for you to do that regardless, to do service work, give back with your time, not just your money. Mm-hmm. Because and it's, w- would that be within the ten day silent retreat or no, would, like after? Okay, mm-hmm. so you come back as a volunteer. You come back, yeah. And they suggest that because there's, I mean, just like any sort of volunteer work, there's a lot that you get that you receive from serving, from being humbled by service, and not you don't have a whole lot of opportunities this day and age sometimes to give that. So it feels really good when you do. Thanks for sharing all that, Elise. I am definitely afraid of doing something like a 10-day silent retreat, and I've thought of like, oh, is it too long? Is it bullshit? But after talking to you again, especially on this podcast, I am much more inspired to do it. So thank you. <laughs> I think that you could do it, Oz. I believe in I feel like you would love it, actually. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things that I feel like would be really good for me, and I need it, but I'm so afraid of it because I'm like, 10 days? But okay, I could I could get behind that. So Elise, where where would you like people to find you, find your work, follow you? Yeah, so I have a YouTube channel where I talk about design, UX design, and how to grow in your UX career. By the way, so, that's user experience. User experience. For anyone listening. <laughs> yes, and user experience design. You can just search me on Google or on YouTube, Elise UX. I also have an Instagram, Elise, E-L-I-Z-E underscore UX. I'm always looking for, you know, feedback on my videos and people to participate and to grow in my my UX community. Yeah. And I'm really excited for you because I see you not just as a user experience designer, but also you're very mindful and conscious and you have this uh, great coaching ability. I could see your personal brand extend beyond design and to helping anyone. Yeah, I'd like for it to go there. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Thank Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Hippie Critical. There's no higher honor you could pay us than to recommend us to a friend. Now think of your most skeptical friend who could find a lot of entertainment and value in this podcast or this episode. You could also check us out at hippiecritical.org. That's hippiecritical.org. Thank you for your presence.